Welcome to Finding My Yum, a sex-positive podcast celebrating all forms of sexual expression. Each week, we bring on a new guest to share their journey. We talk honestly and openly about what they're into and what sex, kinks, love, and more look like in the real world. I'm Jerry Courtney Austin. And I'm Will Lentz. And we are your hosts. Today, we are joined by Ben Morosky to talk all about mental health. Um, this is a second parter to the sequel that's another word for it yeah um to our previous episode with him where he talked all about growing up in a cult um it was so beautiful and honest and open about his journey and struggle with mental health and so we wanted to do a second parter uh as a follow-up to his story and sort of bring up to date of um what he went through to get to today, uh, but also really talk about the uh, what mental health looks like on a daily basis and how it impacts um, everyday life and dealing with it, uh, going to inpatient and outpatient treatment mm-hmm. centers, um, and then navigating relationships and sex and anything in the world. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I feel like we 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 don't see a ton in the media about cults and escaping cults, but there's definitely, that's definitely a genre, right? We don't see that much that comes after the fact. Like how do you, you know, deprogram from it? How do you like get reintroduced into what are the struggles someone goes through? Right. You know? And, and so we were really thankful to have him come back and, and kind of pick up where he left off, you know, and, and hear, you know, what it takes to get to where he is now. Yeah. I think he's one of the most inspirational people I've had the pleasure of knowing Mm -hmm. and also just seeing work as an actor, he is so impactful and beautiful to watch. And um, I feel really grateful that he's willing to share his story here. So, yes, get excited. Please enjoy. I'm feeling yummy head to toe. You see me. Yay! Welcome to Finding My Yum. I am super excited today. Uh, we have Ben Morosky here, who uh, is a good friend of mine, but also this is a part two-er to our previous episode. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah, your uh, episode was so popular. It was a high demand for a number two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so That's you. You did that. I did, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I'm looking forward to, to continue talking. Yeah, so... Um, I think what we've decided we're going to focus on today is where we stopped, uh, which, you know, uh, having a 45 minute conversation about um, someone's life, especially let's fraught with all of the, I mean, just the journey that you've been on is incredible. So you let's just do a little bit of a recap. So you are part of a church that was called Grace is called Grace Valley. Yeah, Grace Valley Christian Center right. in Davis, California. Um, which is a cult. It is. Um, and uh, we we talked about that journey and sort of what the church looked like, how it indoctrinated people. Um, and and then the uh, can you tell just like as a recap, like a little bit of like the predominant, um, what their message was like what was the thing that they overarching were telling people and getting people to spread that message or at least keep it within the family so it's a pretty hardcore version of evangelical christianity um that ends up being very guilt and shame based we're fallen sinners from birth and everything we do is sinful and unless you become a christian you're fucked um, and right when you 
were growing up, they started a school that went up until high so, school, right? Yeah, through ninth grade. Through ninth so grade. So I went there from fifth to ninth grade. It started when I was in fifth grade. And then your parents were also involved as my church leaders they were leaders of the college ministry for a number of years right yeah um and you were a part of that while you were in college i was yeah i stayed in davis and went to uc davis which was encouraged sure um and then so okay so then uh fast forward to 2010 which was when you and your family left the church yeah the summer before my senior year of college my parents uh decided to leave the church and everyone we all left at the same time right okay so let's just talk a little bit about why you guys decided to leave yeah. again because it was surrounding a little bit of uh it was surrounding a traumatic experience that it was unable to ignore at that point yeah right? so my brother one of my brothers um told my parents that he'd been molested by a friend of ours in the church and the short version is my parents said, told the church leaders, we need to leave. And they said, no, you need to forgive this person and reconcile, mm -hmm. um, which basically amounts to water under the bridge and continuing to live with everyone like it really didn't happen. Right. Um, not even acknowledging it. And my parents were like, no, we're not doing that. Um, and so they decided to leave. And then we were excommunicated from the church and Which we left looks like what i mean it, i mean it, it's i could imagine you, you have a community for the entire time that you're alive and then all of a sudden like a, a total communication is cut off yeah yeah and that and the funny thing about it is it's a it's a kind of a joke because excommunications intended to be kicking someone out of a church who doesn't want to leave <laughs> <laughs> We right. were like, we're but, gone. But, Thank you. <laughs> right. But and then they, they excommunicate like... you afterward. But it's more for the people who are still there. Got it. Um, where it's like, there's no more communication. So we were shunned by people in town. People wouldn't talk to you. I was dating at the time. And my girlfriend also left um, Grace Valley basically when we did. And she was living with some roommates who were still in the church. And oh. when we were leaving, I was like, wouldn't oh, it be gosh. crazy if they didn't talk to you? <laughs> like, and they didn't talk to her. They didn't talk to us they in the same apartment. Wow. How long yeah. did that continue for? It's a couple months. I think they were in a lease. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> Nightmare Just apartment situation. <laughs> yeah. Compound everything. Just like would look at like a girl I grew up with from when I was a kid, like wouldn't talk to us. So that was the sort of level of lack of communication i mean you hear about that with the scientology like yeah that's a big thing yes. with them too like when once you get labeled as a suppressive person i think yeah it's like everyone has to immediately stop interacting right. with that person at all but they also they're from what i understand they harass you as well i think probably i think it's like the community you're not supposed it's like right. if you are an individual in it you can't be right. engaging with an an SP, Got but it. like all the, all the church elders or whatever, I'm sure can continue to run. <laughs> sure. So. Yeah. I, I, I imagine that's so decent. I mean, that's also the silent treatment is one of the most horrific punishments, yeah. right? Yeah. Of like not even getting to have any kind of dialogue around anything. And like all of a sudden these relationships are just severed. Yeah. And it had gotten to the point, obviously, by the time I was in college where I didn't really have any other friends outside. The only community I had outside of the church was because um, all my friends at, at uh, UC Davis, where it was based through the college ministry for the most part. Right. 
Um, so I was, I was doing plays at that point though in Sacramento. So those were, that was sort of the community that I had at that point was people I was acting with. Yeah. Um, but I remember being in rehearsals and being like, just sitting there thinking to myself, like we left, like we actually left, like that is over. It was, it was crazy. I mean, it was really, really crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so the relationship that you were in yeah. was when you were a part of the church, I remember you saying there was like a very specific structure for yeah. how courting was supposed to look and right. wooing was supposed to look. But you guys already had um, sort of rebuffed that idea, right? To a degree. Because yeah. weren't you supposed to get engaged within a pretty short time period? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and you had already been dating for We dated for a while. I mean, so so we we did stay together um for God, how long did we stay together after we left the church? Maybe after we left the church through our senior year of college, I was still um in the same relationship. So Which is how long after? So we left the church the summer before my senior year of college. So we were together oh, okay. Okay, my yeah. whole senior year. Yeah. But it was still just so fraught with the number of years after after we left were still so fraught for me with idea. I mean, I can't even really get myself to that mental space now. It's mm. um, even though it hangs on in certain ways, sure. um, but just the sort of guilt and shame around probably with relationships around like sex and um, right and just sort of not really being able to unpack that or shake it you right. know did and just did you guys have sex after or like during while you were in the church not when we were in the church no. thank god that would have really screwed with my head yeah yeah no yeah, pun yeah, intended <laughs> um thank you so after thank you bring some levity <laughs> Um, so, but after you left, was, that was something that became at least an option? It became an option. I mean, yes. And I think it it did. I mean, it became a thing that, that, you know, I, that we started to explore, but it was not, not in any sort of like candid way, like with the other person. Not, it wasn't something we were able to talk about even together. Sure. Um, okay, so yeah. so you leave the church, and so I, I there was a a mental sort of shift that was happening yeah. of trying to find some grounding then in the world and like what it meant, right? Um, and so what was the journey like after that? Because you know we talked, I think, briefly about going to an inpatient and then an outpatient yeah. um, facility, but. What led to that? And then let's talk through yeah. like coming out of on so the I th- other side. Of I think leaving the church, there was like a huge sense of relief and you're just kind of everything's new and you're f- and I was figuring things out. And but I was still in a in the safe space of like with my family and still in a relationship that I was comfortable in, sure. um, even though that relationship was though I was comfortable in it was probably less and less sort of like serving what I needed or I was realizing that I, you know, wasn't going to last Um so, so I ended Which up just heartbreaking in and of itself. Yeah. And especially having come out of the, having that person, having been the only person who supported my family, like, 
right. emotionally was like, yeah, I'm with you guys, like no one else. Um, yeah. So then being like, yeah, this isn't working for me anymore. I have a question because yeah. in terms of relationships um, and even like sex and, and connecting with another person on a physical level, like what did you have any conceptions of like if because within six months you're supposed to like know who the person is and yeah. like settle down like was there's this this conception that that person was supposed to be perfect for you and that they were your true love or or was it more of a thing of like you meet the person and then you choose and then that person is just like elected from God I and think they that's become probably part of a more journey. accurate okay. I think that's probably a more accurate representation so like love and connection weren't necessarily the number one components of it it was you choose a person who feels like they're going to be a good fit and then you make it work yeah and kind of the idea and I'm, I almost think it's like a melding of the two potentially where it's like if mm -hmm. it happens then it was ordained by God sure. you know <laughs> sure whatever so. happens is yeah. yeah oh that's so interesting isn't that a lovely little catch-all it is which is also I imagine so destabilizing when you get out and you're like oh but if yeah. God isn't the one doing all of this yeah. or it's not already prescribed or written in stone, then where, what do I do now? And to that point, I think, um, so once, once that was like a, an awakening, mm -hmm. I think, or whatever you want to call it, as yeah. far as that next sort of year, year and a half. And especially when I broke off that relationship, um, I think I was in a, it's, it's tough to really put a timeline on everything as sure. far as like, where were you mentally? Yeah, and like, yeah. how did that, how did it all fall apart for you? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think it went from a place of like newness and like we were out to then this sort of sneaking sense of, I don't know what the hell's going on sure. at all. Right. Um, with anything. And, and I, and self injury started to creep back in for me. Um, I think part did of that was. Did you take was, a break from that for? For was most of my senior year of college, oh. um, yeah, and I was in a fairly good place. Mm -hmm. I, I'm that's I don't know how true that is, sure, but sure, in sure. my recollection, yeah, 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 <laughs> I did. Um, but but once uh, once college was over and I was just kind of I wasn't really working steadily. I think I worked six months still at the job I had on campus. Mm -hmm. um, I was working at the Alumni Association. But once I was done with that, there was there were a number of things that naturally fall away once you graduate college. Yeah. And then with the church stuff, um, and then I, I got into, uh, I started dating someone else. Um, who Outside was, of the church. Yeah, Ooh. yeah. So we'd been out over a year. I had ended the relationship I was in, and I, I started dating someone else who I was in a play with. Um, and she was not religious at all and so it was was definitely like a mind-blowing kind of experience where it's like how do I how do I make this work for me I'm, I'm experiencing things that I don't really know how to fit within what I know or or how to sort of where do I put the guilt that I feel about these things considering I can't deal with it in the church even if it's a punishing um process to go through like confess your sins to someone you at the end of it you still get absolved of your sins mm. you know you still get a solution right, but right. living outside of a religious structure you have to find the places to put your guilt and the shame that you feel how well, do you I've wear those heard anyone say that in that way before but yeah I can imagine that's terrifying 
Because yeah. at least the structure provides, uh, yeah, a safety net and a catch And I remember like, telling her at one point, um, I just want, I was, I was just kind of like losing it. I was like, I just, I would rather be back in Grace Valley and have someone tell me what's right and wrong mm. than be, than not know, um, and have to figure it out. Um, but I think, I think all I said at the time was I would rather be back in and have someone tell me what to do. Cause even if it's like not what I like, at least I know black and white what's expected of me. Sure. Um, so, um, yeah, and we talked briefly last time about I didn't want to go back and see a therapist once I started dealing with self-injury again more more um, intensely in 2011. So my mom had called our insurance. The insurance had recommended an outpatient program and had said it was a great idea, uh, which is great. I mean, there's no – we also talked about the idea of that – there's not a lot of good roadmaps out there to how to navigate the mental health world outside of seeing a therapist or seeing a psychiatrist. But what if you think you need something else or if those things aren't working? So I went to that program and, uh, yeah, it was me and, and, I think eight or nine other eight or nine women, um, who were (laughs) most of whom were middle-aged and seemed to be dealing with different things, um, than I was. And, it was five days a week, eight to three or eight to four with a lunch break um, and just groups all day and no real contact with the therapist. Um, you see a psychiatrist, they prescribe you medication. Was um, that the first time that you were on medication? I was on medication previously when I was seeing a therapist. Um, I was on Wellbutrin for a number of years mm-hmm. at a I don't know if it was a low dose. I think it was, but at this point, I don't remember. Um, I I eventually got off that just because I, I think probably during that senior year when I felt good right. and um, right when the initial release happened, like yeah. it doesn't quite drop into yeah. yeah. So so I was in this outpatient program and and they were you're around people dealing with a lot of other issues and it's hard to. Um, hard to sort of contextualize like well what am I doing here and yeah I guess it's interesting because I you know most mm, um, to put it in context of like an addiction yeah. like somebody with uh, addiction in order for those programs to be useful a person has to go in with a very clear intention and a clear desire and will to come out of it, um, having worked through a lot of the underlying issues that are resulting in them using or doing whatever. I don't think that can be overstated enough. I mean, that yeah. I, I didn't realize that until probably six months later. Well, and that's, I guess, what my question is, is like, yeah. what was the intention of going it? Was it just to stop self harming which it was cutting right so was it to just basically stop the act or was like was your family and were you interested in really unpacking what what had resulted like from the church and like what the aftermath was I think both I mean I think obviously that it's it's easier to go in with the idea of like I just want to stop doing this or like this needs to stop sure and then obviously, I think the question follows, well, what started it? The problem is, it's like, and I think it was just that 
for whatever reason, I don't remember why I, I was so intent on not going back and seeing an individual therapist. I, I don't think I ever, it just felt like something I'd done. Mm-hmm. So, and that's even something where, where I've continued to evolve on and takes a, has taken a long time to get to a place of like, well, it's fine to go back and see a therapist. I've just started seeing a therapist again in the past year yeah. after not having been in therapy for a couple years. And I remember telling her when I first, in one of our first sessions, that it was my first time being in therapy without being in crisis mm-hmm. um, and yeah, realizing that totally I needed to, <laughs> that there was value in separating the two. And also, I don't now need to create a crisis in order to justify opening up and being there. Um, So I think that was also a constant battle um, and something that was always an aspect of self-injury. And to answer your question, at least partially, the idea of if I don't know what's causing it, then all I can... Self-injury is always symptomatic of other things. Right. It is something unto itself, but it's also symptomatic of other things going on. Um, it's why I, I roll my eyes when people say, use the phrase, it's something being a cry for help. Well, it's like, maybe you should fucking listen to them. You sure. know, maybe yeah, they need funny. help. I was just going to say you know? that. I mean, because it's a visible, it's such yeah. a visible thing. Yeah, it, it is. Well, and it's evidence. If I don't, if I don't have anything else I can put my finger on, I can at least say, "Hey, look." You know, even if I'm not saying, "Hey, yeah. look," yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. I don't. You know, I don't need to apologize for being here just because I don't know what the fuck is going on. You yeah. know, absolutely. Um, but to your point about needing to be in an intentional place to to get out, get something out of uh, out of a program like that. Um, I only lasted there two and a half weeks because it was it was just sort of going round and round. Um, and uh, in the in the groups and it didn't really feel like I was getting somewhere. I was learning a lot of things that were interesting. It was the first time I was exposed to um, dialectical behavioral therapy. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. DBT. DBT. Which is for uh, borderline personality disorder, right? Yeah, yeah. Mainly. Mainly. um, It's an offshoot of cognitive behavioral therapy. Right. Um, So dialectical behavioral therapy was developed by this uh, woman, Marsha Linehan, at the University of Washington in the 80s, and it's continued since then to Mm -hmm. come to prominence. But it it incorporates mindfulness um, and then tactics to to around and around distress tolerance and emotional regulation right. and it's and and communication with other effective communication with other people mm-hmm. so i was getting my first exposure to that stuff and when you're sitting there on the edge of like losing your shit hearing about that stuff doesn't feel very helpful mm-hmm. um yeah, I would imagine it doesn't. So, so I think <laughs> it, I don't think it wasn't that they were actively not providing for my needs. I think it was that I didn't know how to express what I needed, probably because I didn't really know what I needed sure. or want to admit the yeah. depth of what I needed. Right. Um, well, and we're only able to access as far as we can in, in the moment. And yeah. if you were able to all of a sudden get into all that depth, I, I don't know what could con- like what container 
could other people create to hold that a- as well, yeah. right? Like, well, and why would I even need to be there if I had if I could really sure dive down all the way, and, <laughs> right. you know, so like and come down. up whole again? <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. So I ended up uh, cutting myself at the outpatient program on a break, and um, it was bad enough to where I had to tell someone, um, and at that point they sent me straight to first to the emergency room um and then to then when a bed opened up they do a psych evaluation at the emergency room mm-hmm. and then after a number of hours when a bed opened up sent me to the uh one of the inpatient um hospitals was was suicide ever a thought or was it just that. not at that point okay. um i think it's you know something that's bounced around in my head but not not something that's um serious and i don't think you're asking but it's a fair question because self-injury and suicide get it's a slippery like they get conflated a lot well and that's I, what i mean is yeah. like if you were like if if the intention was to just was the actual act itself as mm-hmm. opposed to versus yeah. taking your life. Well, you know, it's funny. It I don't, it was not, it was not a suicidal intent. I, I, but I do think there was intent to just change what was happening, sure. you know, just shift what was happening, but I couldn't, but probably in a way that I couldn't articulate. Yeah, Otherwise I would have been like, so this isn't working for me. Um, I need to go somewhere yeah, else yeah, yeah. <laughs> or not be in this and program. Not, not that you have to put yeah. a label on it, I guess. I don't know why I was curious about that. Cause I just feel like intention is, is interesting, especially when you talk about, you know, we talk a lot about BDSM on this podcast yeah. and masochism in, yeah. in particular, um, which involves a lot of pain infliction yeah. and, and pleasure from pain. And so, it's this really fine line, right? Um, and BDSM, I will make clear again, is is a very safe communicative practice right. when it's being done right. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I guess what, what I'm interested in too is like the nature of the expression of sort of your depression and, 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 um, mental health was so body focused too. And I'm curious if, if any work that you did came up around that just because, because you were so restricted body wise and I find religion in general. And even in this country, we are so restricted body wise. We're not taught to fully embrace what's happening. Like if any of the work that you've done, sort of resonates with that or any like anything came up around that sort of aspect yeah I mean I that's super interesting because I think it's something that I still continue to wrestle with Mm -hmm. because I I'd be lying if I said I didn't still struggle with self-injury off and on um and haven't continued to over the years because I have um and it's and I feel like I'm in a very different place than I was when I was in these real crisis modes. So so what what is it doing now? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think one of the most freeing things was when I finally when a therapist that I was working with finally just said, look, I don't care if you cut yourself, if you self-injure it's not about whether it's right or wrong it's about whether you want to do it or not 
Mm-hmm. Um, and whether it's if you if you're looking to lead a, a life that that you want to lead and that's productive for you, is it helping that or is it hurting that? Mm. You know, and unpacking it that way rather than being stuck in the mindset of whether it's right or whether it's wrong. Right, and that you've done something. Because if it's wrong, bad. it just perpetuates itself. Totally. Um, and yeah, I think it also to definitely is wrapped up in a, a sense of control. You know, mm-hmm. or I'm I'm in control. Right. You know. Or even when I when I cut myself at the outpatient program, the idea of like, I'm shifting the circumstances of this. I'm shifting this timeline right now. Right. Actively. Yeah. You know, there's blood on the floor and someone's going to have to respond to this. Yeah, it's not working. And I don't think I was able to articulate that at the time, but it certainly happened. Yeah. You know. And so from there, you went to an inpatient. From there, I went to an inpatient program. Mm -hmm. Um where it was very much, I was on a, I was on a 5150, which in California is a 72 hour hold. Right. Um, then the, the psychiatrist reevaluates you. Their job is to keep you alive. Um, so I was on a lot of, I was getting put on more medication. Um, and, uh, and you're just in there with the people dealing with a whole host of issues. People in these programs going cold turkey off meth, off heroin. Um, right. uh, people who are severe alcoholics dealing with issues, people who are suicidal. Um, so it's it's uh, it's an interesting experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very much structured like the outpatient program where you get up and you go to groups and um, you sit... They put a- you all together? Yeah. yeah. In an inpatient interesting yeah I actually didn't know that yeah well what's your maybe I'm not explaining it well no I didn't realize that um you're talking about within a 72 hour hold all of the people who are in whatever hour of their hold they're having group meetings yes I don't know why that feels so (laughs) arresting to me I'm just like (laughs) a lot of people having major traumatic issue in one room and asking them i don't know that feels like a lot of pressure for everybody involved yeah it's funny it's a lot of pressure but it's mostly uh um severe amounts of boredom Mm because you're having to fill full days and you're trapped in you know in a small space with people um yeah. Uh, so, 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 but not much is really getting accomplished. You're, you're meeting with your psychiatrist. You're, I remember my, my mom was meeting with, you're meeting with the social worker and they're like trying to help you figure out what, what to do next. Um, I have a question. Does, yeah. um, does something like that go on your record? Are there any kind of consequences for, um, being checked in or having a 5150 like later in terms of you like getting health insurance or I don't know any other I don't know I don't know what HIPAA protects or not okay or what if HIPAA kind of keeps everything private um I don't remember have you but you haven't encountered um I don't think I could buy a gun for a number of years but sure uh, (laughs) but but you physically sign a paper that's like you can't buy a gun like oh really yeah they make you sign something i like that i'm yeah. okay with that. i don't have an issue with it yeah, either to I'm, be honest i'm totally fine with that um but no i haven't encountered anything okay. like that I was just um curious. so i bounced out of that i was discharged eventually 
um, after they did keep me longer. They kept, I was in there for like two weeks. Oh. Um, but then ultimately I, I was discharged. Um, and I was out for about two weeks. And then within that span, I, I, I basically checked myself back in to inpatient. Oh, okay. Um, I felt, I got to a place where I felt unsafe with myself, um, and was like, I need to go, I need to go back in. Um, and I think part of that, amazing. yeah, I I mean, it's amazing. And, and it's also like, I don't, it's, I think it was also fortunate, you know, I think my, my parents were there to like hear that and be like, yes, good idea. You know, also we don't know what else to do. And this is the, this is the resource right now. Yeah. Um, so I was back in and, and I don't remember a lot of that time. I don't remember maybe like 10 days to two weeks. I, I lost the time completely because mm. I was on so much medication that I was, I couldn't, I, I couldn't remember anything. Yeah. Um, and at that, during that time, my parents were doing furious amounts of research to find something else just because it was going downhill. The, the social worker ultimately told my mom that, they, my mom came into a meeting and she was like, so what are the options that you've come up with? And the social worker had come up with nothing. Um, and I know those people are overloaded and it just still seemed like it it was a huge letdown, you know? Was that also because there weren't programs available or, I mean, was the resources thin? Potentially. I think resources are always thin. Self-injury is always something that it's tough to really put a finger on. There's not a lot of programs that gear toward self-injury. Mm. And there's certainly not a lot of programs that gear toward self-injury not that's not co-occurring with something else, especially if you're a man. Um, oh, that's interesting. Is it a female? It's perceived as a female dominant. Um, okay. It's associated with women. Sure. Statistically, it breaks down um, more like 60-40. 60% women, 40% men. Okay. So, and I don't know what the statistics are now, but it's it's roughly even, even though it's perceived as being um, mostly women. Um, but there's also just not programs dealing with, with self-injury specifically. Mm. Um, so it's kind of like, well, if I don't know anything, how do I read between the lines to figure out whether they can help my son or not. Got it. Um, and through her research, she finally found by this strange series of coincidences of, of, of looping research. Um, she was the Menninger clinic in Houston, Texas was recommended to her, which is a, uh, I suppose world famous, like psychiatric institution. It's always near the top of the lists of, um, of the top, top psych, hospitals um so i ended up going there um to like their you know lockdown facility for a month and a half um and that is a place where they have different wings where it's like i was on the wing that was it was 18 to 35 year olds everyone's in the same age range co-ed um but very very specific and you do meet with an individual therapist Um, you meet with, you have a psychiatrist, you, there is like a, even within that wing, there's like a, there's like a track for people who are dealing with eating disorders. There's a track for people dealing with, um, alcoholism or drug abuse. And one of the key things there was, um, they take you off your medication 
when you get there so that they can know who you are (laughs) rather than be diagnosing what's happening with your medication. Because I think a big part of the problem with what was happening in Sacramento was that towards the end, I was just on so many different things and they don't really know you. And my mom is like, this is not who he is. And they're like, ah, the crazy mom again. You know what I mean? The parent who's like over concerned and telling us what to do. But it's like, no, you just don't know, you know? And you have like little zombies running around. Yeah. And I was on Prozac, which I'm pretty sure I was having a negative reaction to. I mean, it's one of the oldest and most well-respected antidepressants, but it's also now, I now know, notorious for certain people having a negative reaction to and it. suicidal thoughts. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. So when I was in Houston, they take the time to take you off at the Menninger Clinic. They take the time to, to take you off your medication, then prescribe new medication wow. once they know you. So I was there for six and a half weeks. Um, the normal stay is I think two months. Um, but I was, I was just in a place. I was still in that relationship that I was in. Um, Oh wow. It lasted this whole time. So we were, so that relationship was only lasted, I think a total of seven months, but it encompassed all the time I was in treatment. Um, wow. So it was pretty brutal, um, on the relationship. And then also I think I would have stayed longer at at the Menninger Clinic if I had not been in the relationship. I was just like, it was my first relationship out of the church. I was figuring out like, it's just tough to communicate. I mean, long distance is hard enough, let alone when like you don't have your own phone, you have access to the computer, like maybe once a day, just email. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, uh, I talk with my mom about this um, and with my parents because my parents made huge financial sacrifices. I was just going to say that I think that that's like one of the biggest detriments in this country and worldwide, but that like, thank God you had the resources. I I talk to my parents about that a lot. My mom and I have had multiple conversations where it's like, if we were, if, if we were this strapped and, but could still make it happen with like my grandparents help and my parents did a lot of financial gymnastics and I just think about people who don't have the resources and, Yeah, I mean it's it's I would say tragic, but it's it it's partially tragic, but it's mainly just infuriating um right. that the conversations don't seem to surround the things that are most necessary. Right. The conversations surround putting more beds in the facilities that we already have, which is great and it's a good starting place, but True. it's not nearly enough. Right. Um and the because we want solutions now. I right. mean, the proliferation yeah, of medication mm-hmm. is we, I take this and it, it at least alleviates my symptoms. Right. Um, or it makes you palatable enough that I don't have to deal with you. Yeah, no, that's a great mm-hmm. way to put it. Yeah. Um, it makes you palatable enough to exist in my reality as normal. Absolutely. If you're not affecting yeah. me in an abnormal way, then you're fine. <laughs> you know? Right. That I've deemed um, abnormal. Yeah. So, Enough so that I don't have to pay attention to you as much. So I fin- when I was finishing up in Houston, they told me, they kept talking about like, you should go to a step-down program. And I was like, what's a step-down program? Mm-hmm. It's like you're learning all this like weird sure. new terminology. And you're <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know what that means. Um, and I was like, no, I'll be fine. I'm just going to like go like start seeing a therapist in Sacramento again. And like I have my, you know, post-treatment plan. And sure. 
Um, and I got back and things broke down rather quickly. I was just like not in an environment to, I just didn't know what to do with myself. I was back, you know, not working in Davis, living at home in a relationship, didn't know what the hell I was doing. Um, so, so we ended up, my dad and I visited the step down program they recommended, which was down in LA. Um, it's called the Optimum Performance Institute. Mm. And it's basically a residential um, treatment program where you live with people for in in the program um, in apartments, and then you go to they take you to groups every day at their um, at their office space, um, and it's basically a transition from from being inpatient to helping you set up an independent life like for the first time. Right. And I didn't realize that that would be necessary because I was like, I'm an independent adult. Um, and then I, you know, eventually came to realize it's like, I don't know, maybe it's partially around, I guess what you were saying earlier about if you could, if you realize this stuff about yourself on your own then you don't, you wouldn't have needed it. Yeah. Um, even so. Yeah. I realize a lot and then. I just sort of stare at it sometimes. Yeah, you know? <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Just like yeah. So also having like someone to kick you, kick <laughs> you in the ass a little bit. Yeah. Um, so again, again, it was one of those things where it was like the, the financial sacrifices that that my parents made to were able to make mm. to 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 put me through that program as well. Um, and all the way along in all of these programs, it was coming back to, yes, individual therapy. Yes, we're, you know, monitoring your medication from a reasonable perspective. Um, and then also things like mindfulness and DBT. Um, content. It finally hit me. It finally hit me when I was in group in, like, probably a room this big in, in Woodland Hills. Um, and I was like, oh sitting in a fucking room isn't going to change shit, you know? <laughs> Me punching the card and coming in here isn't going to change anything on its mm. own. My physical presence, while valued, sure. doesn't make an actual difference yeah. because I can tune it out. Because all the way along, you're just seeing people at different places, and I was that person for a long time in in a lot of the programs I was in, tuning tuning things out. Yeah. Um, but it finally hit me when I was when I was in that group. Like, I have to say yes mm-hmm. in order to for yeah. this to make a difference yeah doesn't matter how good the information is if i'm not saying yes to what's happening here and engaging um like you guys are saying earlier it doesn't it doesn't matter right it doesn't matter how good the program is right. um and so i look back and i and i told the story briefly last time when we talked about a friend of mine who ended up doing that outpatient program in Sacramento years after I did, but he called me right before he went in and I was able to let him know, look, it's going to be really boring. There's going to be a lot of groups that you're going to not really understand the relevance of, but there is going to be some good stuff. You do need to advocate for yourself. And if you're able to approach it from that perspective, even a program like that can be helpful. And I, as I think he would say it was it was hugely beneficial to him, despite the you know boredom uh, through certain sections of it and the sort of. How long were you in the residential program in L.A.? Yeah, um, I was involved with the program at the start of 2012 for more, um, probably the better part of three and a half months. Okay. Yeah. And so then transitioning out of that, 
a part of it, was there any, I just feel like the connection to the body is so important. Was there any discussion of that? Was, was there any movement classes or like physical exercise or, or something like that, that at least connected the cerebral parts and the... One of my good friends was work, who is one of my good friends now and one of my people I've worked with creatively a bunch since, um, he was working at the program at the time. Um, oh, really? Yeah, teaching. Uh, he's a really talented actor, um, teaching improv classes. Oh, okay. So, so there was that sort of like physical engagement. Yeah. Um, so that and those things made a huge difference to me because it is different sitting and processing things versus versus even putting the concept of like, yes, I'm going to engage with this activity physically. Right, 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 right. Um, Well, and I feel when I moved out to L.A., I did a conservatory acting program. And it was the first time that I had been involved in movement or voice classes. And I was transformed even by the idea of we spent 15 minutes where the teacher was like, just move however your body wants to move. Like being able to have that permission to turn the brain off. Yeah. And to just move, um, it, I, I like opened so many more doors where I was like, oh, my body is speaking to me all the time and I can try to intellectualize it a lot and that is helpful. But I'm getting messages all the time of yeah. how I feel and where things are being held and how I'm processing stuff without necessarily needing to put words to it yeah and there were groups there was a there was always a I don't know if it was once a week or or more than that but there was a mindfulness group where this Mm. woman would come in and we would just have to like sit with our experience or like she would take us outside and like be being with our physical experience and it was so uncomfortable yeah Um, it is right yeah yeah. and I and so I just in terms of the teaching of the church yeah. and how you're supposed to hold your body and sexuality and sex, then what was the evolution of that, especially then doing these mindfulness things where it wasn't ever like encouraged within the church to yeah. have those kind of experiences? It's a combination of, I think one of my, one of the freeing things for me from, from DBT was the idea of, uh, if you feel guilty about something that you shouldn't feel guilty for, keep doing it until you stop feeling guilty about it. Oh, <laughs> oh like, that's interesting. Oh, hmm. Wait, maybe did you I just will. Start having a uh, lot of sex um, and being like, "I'm gonna get through it." <laughs> I, you know, it's funny. I think <laughs> I, I, I wish. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I think over over a longer term period of time and just like continuing to, it's like you said, you can still know something is true. And, and sit and look at it and ignore it. Right. Um, but over a longer term period of time, I think that was definitely the case. Just yeah. having sex or being in another relationship and, and having sex. And, and, and then it's like you wake up and you're like, oh, good. I'm I, like, I'm still not dead. You know, <laughs> like I'm st- nothing bad has happened. Yeah, 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 you know? yeah. And totally getting that feedback over and over and it takes time to get that feedback in in whatever aspect even with the even with self-injury and being in in the relationship I'm in now um it's not all about being in a relationship but it's definitely like a a test of like how you react to 
feedback you're getting from another oh, person yeah. well, that you really such a care mirror about. When exactly. You're very close yeah. To somebody. But I've you know dealt with self injury and we've been together almost two years and um, yay. Uh, yeah, thanks. She's uh, so great. Yeah. Oh, she <laughs> says hi by the way. Uh, hello. Um, <laughs> Uh, but dealing with self-injury in a relationship, in a trusting relationship where she's obviously not happy when it happens, but, but there's the, the level of trust to Mm. know that it's not the end of the world, her level of trust in me to know that I am dealing with it. And then my continual learning that like, I remember one time I, I had, I had burned myself and I was, I was ashamed of it. This mm-hmm. was last year and I didn't tell her. And then she happened to see it and she was upset because I hadn't, her main level of upset was that I had hidden it from her and okay. she was blindsided by it. And it was again, a learning experience of like, Oh, right. Communicating with some, someone, even about something that I'm not proud of that I've done yeah. or I'm ashamed of is, um, is more productive than sitting on it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then the guilt like festers. Exactly. Because you yeah. imagine what the other person is going to think yeah. or going to yeah. say. Or play back the old tapes of like, well, this is how people reacted to me in the past. And, you know, I'm curious, um, with the, my experiences that I've had, like with my previous relationships and even growing up, like, especially out of my last relationship, for a long time and still things come up where I'll be like moving through the world and I'll realize that like I had a preconceived notion of like myself or what I was supposed to be doing or feedback that I had been given for so long and all of a sudden I'll be like oh my god I actually think that or I actually believe that about myself which I never realized because it was sort of on autopilot. I think it's a tricky thing to, mm-hmm. I, I like how you articulated that because it's a tricky thing to realize. I think about that a lot now being in therapy again for yeah. the first time in a while and it being a mirror to my own experiences. And it's realizing the degree to which things from the church are still sort of imprinted in how I think about things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, 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 Choosing to accept it as as just a fact of of uh, well that's there right. rather than like I can't think about that because then I'll I haven't made any progress you know yeah, the danger totally. it's almost and honestly for me I feel like half the time it's more the danger of like making the mistake of thinking that you're done with something I also feel like it's perpetuated with social media and. And then how we think about things with medication and where it's like we want beginnings and we want endings. We don't we don't want we want stories where it's like this celebrity used to struggle with such and such. And here's the they have an amazing story to share with us. And now they're done. They're done. They beat it. They beat it. You know, it's much more we're much more uncomfortable with stories of things that are ongoing. And I think in, in their own way, especially with things regarding mental health, especially with things with self injury. I mean, the question I get most asked most um, about self-injury now is like, so you don't do that anymore, right? Totally. And it's like, well, for your sake right now at this bar, no, I don't do it anymore. <laughs> sure. If it makes yeah. you sleep better at night, yeah, 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 you know. Absolutely. Um, it's so interesting because, it, you know, I think with the evolution of even doing this podcast yeah. and, and talking, because they're all, and mental health, like it's all sort of combined of, like we op at least I operate from a place and I think I've noticed human 
human beings in general is like we're so trying to protect all of the shit that's coming up within ourselves based on everybody else so if I can define you if I can put a label on you if I can understand you if I can see you doing something that I'm afraid that I've thought about or like you know and you don't do it anymore then that means that I'm not going to actually do it and it's not actually a pervasive problem that can affect me or like change or challenge me in any way you know and so I feel like that's such a big part of this culture of like as long as we put on a happy face and everybody else looks happy like I get to be happy too and I don't have to acknowledge my demons and I certainly don't have to acknowledge yours yeah yeah definitely um I ended up in inpatient treatment one other time Mm. after a year or so, maybe more after I was out of inpatient, I um, had a bunch of leftover medication laying around that I hadn't been taking and I decided to take it all. Again, it was one of those situations where I don't think it was about trying to commit suicide. I think it was a, a different sort of another sort of like monster rearing its head of like, this is another sort of just purely self-destructive act to, to kind of change, change. the moment, yeah. you know? And I ended up in a, in a, on a 5150 in LA in a, in an inpatient program. So that was a whole other interesting sort of revisiting of how many years after the first one that was in like 2013. Okay. Um, so, but to your point about just, or something we were talking about earlier where, where, where we revisit things that we've struggled with and we want them to be done with, but then we have to, we're forced to confront them again. Yeah. Um, and I, and I haven't, I haven't been in treatment again since then. Um, which is great. Yeah. Which is great. And at the same time, it just is, you know, it doesn't have to be anything. Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine. She sent me a text and, it's actually someone I've never met in person, someone who listened to um, a recording of a play I wrote about um, my struggles with self-injury mm. a, a number of years ago. And uh, we've been friends on social media and she was texting me that she was just like, like, I just like want to, she's going through some shit and like, I just want to like beat myself up and like, I'm, I'm struggling with, with the, you know, urge to, to hurt myself. And I was like, I try to think about a lot. Well, like what would I want to hear in that situation and, yeah. and or what would most diffuse the situation, you mm-hmm. know? And I think what most diffuses situations is actually approaching people with like honesty and love rather than like, well, you should do this. And here's what, here's the next step. Yeah. And um, I was like, look, that blows. And, but if you, what did I text her? I, I texted her something to the effect of, don't beat yourself up if you beat yourself up, you know? Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. If you hurt, your, don't hurt yourself for hurting yourself. Right. You know, if you do, that sucks and I'm sorry, but it, it, you know, it's not the end of the world if you do. Well, I mean, it goes back to, I think what you said early on, like one of the things that worked for you when you were talking with someone where they said like, you can make this choice, but just make the choice if that's the choice you want to make. Yeah. Like, it's not wrong to make that choice. It takes the power out of the, yeah, the out act. of the choice, out of the act. Right. Yeah. In a in a great way. I mean, it's so freeing to yeah. take the power out of the act. Yeah. It's definitely it feels dangerous, you know. Sure. And people I think people also to get back to the church, they wanted if everything if I can make if we can make everything black and white for people, then 
you know, it's easier to control people. It's easier to regiment mm-hmm. things. It's easier to create a, a view of life that there are right answers and wrong answers. Yeah. And, and then if they make a wrong choice, we can tell them what's right. Mm-hmm. But stepping out of that now living in a world where, you know, most things are gray. So gray. Mm-hmm. Um, it's scary to have to make choices for yourself, but it's also freeing to be able to. And I don't think one comes without the other. Yeah. You know? No, absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) this human experience is super complicated and terrifying as well as exhilarating, I feel like, most of the time. And that's where I don't think self-injury is some... People think they don't understand it, but I think they understand it more than they... I think it's understandable more than they think they they do. Yeah. Um, It's not that different than any number of other things, which I think is a not minimizing anyone's experience, but is a, is a positive thing. Yeah. Um, and it's hugely freeing again, taking the, taking the pressure out of it, taking yeah. the power out of it. Yeah. And also by acknowledging it, it does feel like this super uh, taboo sort of thing. Yeah. But, but the more that it's said and the more that it's honestly talked about and honestly saying that it's a continual struggle. Yeah. Um, is amazing for other people to hear that they're not alone and that I still struggle in my own way with, you know, with my mental health and like, um, that it doesn't end that you don't have to be this shiny, perfect, um, you know, I don't know. Well, yeah. Finish, finish line. Yeah. Cause yeah. I mean, someone said it along the way at some point to me, it was where it's, and it really resonated for whatever reason. And a number of people have said it, but you don't need to be fixed because you're not broken, yeah. you know? And, and it is, it's a continuous journey. Yeah. The idea that there's an ending is misleading mm-hmm. and I think causes a lot of missteps. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you're amazing and super inspiring. Thank you for coming back. And Thanks for having sharing, me back. Um, yeah. Part two of this, this journey of, so many parts um where can people find you uh people can find me on instagram my handle is at b morosky b-m-o-r-o-s-k-i yay um yeah and you post a lot of really inspirational content there that's just open and honest and um i didn't realize this on the podcast last time but uh thank you for vocalizing and sharing uh, your story for the first time like out loud in this format right of course yeah yeah. like uh, that's huge and i feel overwhelmingly honored that you were comfortable and and that you gave us that space of course yeah thanks for creating a forum uh for people to do that thanks yay yay (laughs) we did it (laughs) i feel like you get afraid of my volume Every time. Well, uh, I think our <laughs> listeners do too. So, I'm just kidding. Sorry, just kidding. everybody. No, it's great. Love um, that energy. I love you, Ben. Thank you for sharing all that. I I feel enlightened in so many aspects. You know, uh, it really is a story that we don't get to hear, mm-hmm. and so I am once again grateful that we get to share it here. Yeah. Um, with all you lovely listeners. Ben's great. Uh, and also, like, low-key, pretty funny. Oh, like, yeah. I, lo- I love his dry sense of humor from time to time. Yeah. I'm like, that was a good joke. We didn't acknowledge it, but, but, it, was a but good it was a good one. one. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's hard, I feel like, when you're talking about more difficult subjects, sure. you know? Sure. And it's like, I want to hold space. But also, so I'm like, is it a joke? I think it's a joke. 
I don't know. I'm just going to let you indicate, you know, um, that he's wonderful. Uh, As always, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Finding My Young Podcast, the TBD on the Twitter. (laughs) That's going to be a recurring bit, I can tell. (laughs) Uh, Email us at findingmyyum at gmail.com. Rate, subscribe, tell your friends, review. Say what's up if you see us on the street. <laughs> yes, all of the above. You see my bitmoji just walking <laughs> on the street. Um, yes, we want to hear from you. We're always looking for new guests, uh, always looking for new topics of interest. Whatever you're into, we want to talk about it. So hit us up. Slide into those DMs. Bye. <laughs>